Choice. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs>
right there. My brother sent it to me from Greece. Pretty awesome. Very good. Very yeah. good. Yeah. So, I mean, he's obviously best known for um, his involvement against uh, Arianism mm-hmm. and his participation in the Nicene Creed. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was a, a theologian that served in Egypt. He became known as Athanasius the Great or Athanasius the Confessor. Mm-hmm. And he lived from uh, sort of around 296, 98 to around 373. So it's pretty early on. Uh, so before Constantine came along, um, he was in play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bishop of Alexandria. Wow, that's huge. And um, I think he held the post there for, I mean, he was like basically a pastor theologian, which is one of the things I like about him. Like what, about 50, 45 years, something like that, just a long time. And then he had all these exiles. He did, I think his longest stretch of ministry uninterrupted with an exile was 10 years. They called it the, gold, <laughs> the golden decade. And, um, and I mean, it just shows you kind of, I mean, who could even say that? I mean, he had a very disruptive ministry in that sense. But providentially, I think it allowed him the time to work through some, some pretty deep theological issues and, and uh, war with Arianism. And I think um, although it was a big struggle, and from what I understand, you know, there was a stage when he was just the only one virtually who held his views. And if he had given up, I mean, we might be looking at a, a very different scenario today. So God, you know, truly used him uh, through yeah. all these struggles in, in an amazing way. And, uh, and so hence the name uh, Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius Against the World. Yes, That's one of his names. Yes, totally. There we go. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, amazing thought that, I mean, who could even, you know, who could ever say something like that, right? It's almost like not even uh, Elijah got to say that. Um, <laughs> you know, there was there was still the the remnants. Uh, but Athanasius, wow, he was kind of the only one there for a while. And um, and he, he eventually, I mean, intellectually, I think through, you know, certainly at an intellectual level, at an exegetical level, he, he did triumph over Arianism. Um, yeah. And... I suppose that the one the one tricky thing about him he he doesn't have anything to do with the Athanasian Creed though. The um, Athanasian well, Confession. no, th- th- that's disputed. It's obviously based on many of his writings, but that's because he was so influential. What's interesting to right. me is that at the age of twenty seven, he began his role against Arian. So you mm. know, Calvin wrote his Institutes at twenty seven. Mm. Jim Morrison from the Doors died at twenty seven. Athanasius, you know, started against Arius, 27. Jordan Cooper had written like 50 bucks by the age of 27. (laughs) (laughs) It's the great age. Yeah, it is. Um, Wow. So uh, what else can we say about him? He's, um, I suppose in terms of what we've been looking at, um, what, what moves us forward now is that we've been looking at all the apologists and some of the the apologies and and you, you see, uh, a change in the way, you know, we've dealt with persecution as a big theme um, by way of martyrdom and uh, the apologists would be defending Christianity from from staunchly non-Christian worldviews or pagan worldviews. Uh, something different now in that you've obviously, you've got, you've got, you know, people are basically more on the same page when it comes to Christianity. Um, now it's a matter of doctrine. Now it's a matter of, of, of actually having to fight for correct doctrine. And um, and I suppose the idea with the incarnation, and as we know, um, just uh, the divinity of Christ, uh, people yeah. struggled with and that. And this is, this is actually considered his earliest work. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So three nineteen, yep, is when he wrote this. 
I got three thirty-five. So three yeah. three twenty-five is when he sort of it, it was uh, the whole Arius controversy broke out. So this is pre-Arius. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Was no no no. I see now. I think there's some debate about that as well. I'm okay. pretty. I'm pretty I'm just sure. Just checking out Wikipedia here. Yeah. Oh. Wow. That's a pretty pretty good source you got there. I feel so much more confident. <laughs> you um, should go and review it. You yeah. should go and correct it. But I'm pretty sure, if I, you know, I don't know offhand, but I'm pretty sure that that's disputed and that he actually, you know, there's something to do with um, um, Arius, uh, Arian, uh, what's his name? Arian? Arius? Arius. Uh, Arianism, that, yeah. Yeah, so Arianism and Arius that um, that it eventually, that it already kicked in. Um, okay. But, you know, anyways, what, one way or another, um, what he's arguing for is certainly against what the Jewish conception of, like they would have struggled with uh, an incarnate Messiah who had died on the cross. Um, and, you know, um, and then of course we know the Greek, they just didn't like that thought at all. Um, it was beneath them in many ways. And so Athanasius comes along and, and you know, what we'll see in this um in this little snippet that we read, he's, he's very concerned with the logic of it all uh, or that it, it's appropriate, it's congruous, uh, is the word that, um, uh, I don't know if that's the translation that comes through in yours all the time, but, you know, this is not congruous, that's congruous. And, and so that's kind of interesting. Um, but um, other than that, I mean, I, I, when I was reading it, I suppose we can make some make some um, comments as we go. But like one of the things I know he's critiqued for is leaning too far into the Eastern side of things. Um, I don't know if you've heard anything along those lines. Yeah, he's considered one of the four doctors in terms of orthodoxy and mm -hmm. very influential, especially in the East. And, yeah. you know, sometimes he gets accused of teaching that we're saved by incarnation rather than substitutionary yeah. to, you know, and, and I mean, actually reading through the stuff though, I mean, I, yeah. I had a certain impression about the nation when I was reading, I was like, man, I could read this any day of the week. Isn't that this amazing? Stuff is awesome. It's amazing. And I, I kept on thinking like, wow, it's, it's cause I'm almost going into it, not expecting to see any kind of sense of substitutionary atonement at all, but it's coming it's through all over strong. It. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So, and I even saw a covenant of works thing going on there. Yeah. I, I mean, no, it was very, very, just in tune with the whole two Adams covenant of works vibe. Yeah. So yeah, and that comes through in this. So we'll, we'll make some comments as we go. Um, but anyways, I suppose that's a good, good segue. Let's jump in. Yep, so what, what we'll do is just, um, uh, we'll just read paragraph by paragraph. So we're jumping around a little bit. We'll, we'll uh, if you are reading with us, um, we are going to go from like six to eight and then nine and then to 20. So just follow us in that. Uh, who wants to start there, Nick? Let me start. All right, cool. Um, <clears throat> all right. So there's this long, shall I read those long intro, uh, summary introduction things they put in there? Um, I don't have them in mind. So, okay. I'll just yeah. jump straight into the text then. Cool. All right. So he writes, for this cause then, death having gained upon men and corruption abiding upon them, the race of man was perishing. The rational man made in God's image was disappearing and the handiwork of God was in process of dissolution. For death, as I said above, gained from that time forth a legal hold over us, and it was impossible to evade the law, since it had been laid down by God because of the transgression, and the result was in truth at once monstrous and unseemly. For it, for it were monstrous, firstly, that God, having spoken, should prove false, that when once he had ordained that man, if he transgressed the commandment, should die the death, after, after the transgression man should not die, but God's word should be broken. 
For God would not be true if, when he had said we should die, man died not. Again, it were unseemly that creatures once made rational and having partaken of the word should go to ruin and turn again toward non-existence by the way of corruption. For it were not worthy of God's goodness that the things he had made should waste away because of the deceit practiced on men by the devil. Especially it was unseemly to the last degree that God's handicraft among men should be done away either because of their own carelessness or because of the deceitfulness of evil spirits. Yeah, so one thing, so when you uh, you have unseemly, I have incongruous. Um, okay. Which is, yeah, kind of a little bit different, I suppose. But yeah, same same idea in that, how could it be, you know? Um, yeah, how, how could it, Yeah. And um, one thing I did pick up is like, we, we wouldn't talk this way now as easily. Let's put it that way. In that if I was talking about... Um, Okay, fine. We all felt. I, li- I like the way it started. The way um, you know, there's uh, the transgression had come, and we were therefore, uh, you know, in trouble, uh, and and death had set in. But it's almost like we would say, "Well, God is, you know, to- and we got no hold on God at that point. We, you know, it would be totally good if if God just did it all. Uh, you know, sent in the judgment at that point. That would be the end. Who's going to raise yeah. a finger? But it seems that he's gunning for something else here. He's, he's kind of saying, no, that would be unseemly. And actually, you know, yeah. Yeah. You get that? I mean, uh, just what the background that I did read on this, it's because it's one of his earliest works. Um, there was a lot of influence from some of the philosophers. He was mm-hmm. well-schooled in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so appeals to universal reason and universal laws. Right. Um, you know, you could, in, in that context, when you were debating anything, you could appeal to what we now call common sense. Right, right. Um, yeah. And everyone would go, oh, yes, of course. Yes. Whereas uh, being good presuppositionalists um, and being good, you know, in light of our epist- uh, good epistemological awareness, we would say we believe this because the Bible establishes it yeah. not because universal reason establishes it. but i mean back in that day that's the way everyone was talking yeah that's a good point and so we have to keep that in mind obviously we're dealing with a long time ago um yeah. th- what it, what was interesting to me though is that just coming to terms with klein's whole thing where i don't know if we've had a discussion about this but it's really it, it is super interesting in that he, uh, you know, we think of the typical formulation in the Westminster Confession, for example, that uh, God condescended to enter into a covenant with man. You know, if it wasn't for that condescension on God's part, well, you know, of course, we wouldn't be able to claim a covenant relationship with God, even in terms of that that uh, covenant of works. Uh, Klein is, is fine with saying that, you know, God freely entered into it. And certainly, yeah. you know, there was no obligation on God to do that. But in but he wants to say that in the making of creation or in the especially with the image of God upon man that that had already been made it had already been entered in, into um, and so for that reason you know and this this ties into the merit debate and the congress and condign and all that but for that reason there is something that uh, of, of God's justice that can be can be called upon even at that point. So it's not that man sort of makes, oh, I said that God makes man and then just kind of says, well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I will enter into a covenant relationship, maybe not. Um, as if it would be, a, a, you know, an okay thing for God to just simply turn his back on creation at yeah. that point. Almost calls God's uh, character in, into would question. That, would that agree with the idea of a consequent absolute necessity? Um, so having made yeah. the decision to made, make man in his image, 
it would then necessarily flow right. given the nature of God that. That, yeah. I think that's about right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Consequent, absolute absolute necessity. necessity. So it becomes like, absolutely necessary consequent to God's original decision yeah. to make man in his image. And I think everyone agrees that once the covenant was made, that that would be true. It's I think the yeah. issue in debate here is that once the image was set, it's already in place. And, yeah. and so that's a And just coming like back that. to a theology proper, the, the, the necessity comes from God's own choice to make man in a certain way, knowing what would necessarily follow, yeah. and he makes that commitment. Yeah. So he's not bound by the creature or changed mm. by the creature. He's not dependent upon the creature in any way. And so God's simplicity, his unity, his aseity, it's all intact. Totally. And um, it sounds a little bit like he's he's kind of got that in mind. You know, the image has been laid upon man, and, and there's something incongruous, something absurd about um, that, that, that should just you know, fall by the wayside and fall to nothing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, with that in mind. Just a quick question. Yeah. Did you have more? I think I stopped short. Yeah, no, that was exactly where mine stops. Okay, great. Uh, there's yeah. still another paragraph for me, but that's fine. Oh, sweet. Cool. All right. So I'm going on to paragraph eight. Paragraph um, eight. Or chapter eight, paragraph eight, whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry. Just Okay. The incorporeal, incorruptible, and immaterial word of God came to our realm in condescension to show us love and to visit us. He saw that the race of rational creatures was perishing and that death reigned over them through corruption. He also saw that it was God's threat against transgression that gave a firm hold to the corruption that was upon us and that it was absurd that the law should lapse without being fulfilled. He also saw the incongruity of the situation that creatures made by him were fading away. He also saw the exceeding wickedness of men and how they were gradually increasing it to an intolerable pitch against themselves. And lastly, how all men were under penalty of death. He took pity on our race, had mercy on our infirmity, condescended to our corruption and could not bear for death to have the mastery. Lest the creature should perish and his father's handiwork in men be wasted. He took to himself a body that of no different sort from ours, for his aim was not simply to have a body or merely to appear. If he had wanted merely to appear, he could have done so in some better way. But he took a body like ours, that from a pure and spotless virgin who had not known a man, a body clean and truly pure of sexual intercourse, uh, though he was the mighty creator of everything, he prepared the body in the Virgin as a temple for himself and made in it his very own as an instrument in which to be manifested and to dwell. So because all were under the penalty of mortal corruption, he took from our bodies one of like nature and gave it over to death in the place of all, offering it to the Father. This he did because of his love, so that the law involving man's ruin might be undone because all are held to have died in him in that the Lord's power was fully spent in the Lord's body and had no further claim on men like him. He also did it so that whereas man had turned to corruption, he might turn them back to incorruption and quicken them from death by the appropriation of his body and by the grace of resurrection, eliminating death like straw in a fire. And that's Some really good theology in there. 
it's profound. It's so encouraging to read because it's just like, oh, that's that's our gospel. That's our theology. You know, that's our that's how Jesus. You know, we're on the same page. Athanasius is on our team. As you read that, it's yeah. a, it's a good thing to kind of uh, see every now and again because, uh, as we've said before, you know, you read through these guys. Sometimes it feels a little bit foreign. And, um, you know, you get that feeling like, what's going on? Are we even part of the same deal here? But, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's amazing. Lots there as well. Um, Did you yeah. notice about the, um, but he takes a body of our kind and not merely so, but from a spotless and stainless virgin. I did. Yeah. <laughs> that the, sounds a little bit like the groundwork for the Immaculate Conception. Well, and also, you know, I know that does remind me that, um, I think he, I mean the whole concupiscence thing and everything. The 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 grace added to nature. Um, it's very much in Athanasius the whole way through. At some level, I'm just not sure exactly where the development of that started and how how far down the track it was. But um, it was very in sync with what later became all those uh, Roman Catholic doctrines. So um, yeah, uh, you've got something <laughs> something there that's beginning to spiral <laughs> out of control totally. Um, uh, yeah, but yeah. otherwise, I mean, the fact that Christ, the necessity of Christ having a nature like like our own, yeah, what he does not take to himself, he does not save. I mean, it's all it's all there, isn't it? It's all there. Um, there's even that part about the law, you know, just um, uh, you know, I mean, it's just a it's a really sort of rich satisfaction view without wanting to push it too far. There, I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, he's not leaving it at the incarnation. He's saying the incarnation yeah. was necessary for the law fulfillment which is exactly. necessary for our substitution, which is uh, profound. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, good. It was, I don't know if you noticed in the last couple of lines, it talks about he quickens them from death by the appropriation of his body. Um, Just sort of the last The sentence. last one there, quicken them from death by the appropriation of his body, right? What do you think that means? Yeah, the I appropriation know. of his body. Is there a Lord's Supper thing going on there? Yeah. Or a, a sort of a... The language seems to visualize some sort of impartation, mm -hmm. um, some participation thing going on. Man, that would be my best guess. Totally. Yeah. You know. So instead uh, of like saying, "Well, the Holy Spirit takes that which right. is Christ, His resurrection life, and makes it ours," yeah, there's a much more material connection between our life and Christ's body. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, just wondering if there's some. Yeah. Just just raises questions. I don't have the answers, but it no. just raises the question. Uh, yeah. In which case, we're, we're spotting something else. We're seeing Rome form before our eyes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there we go. Um, now, just to say also, uh, you might notice, I don't know if it's coming through in the sound or not, man, it's totally stormy weather outside. It's New Zealand. It's February. It's supposed to be our, our hottest month, but it is like just ridiculous. We're having like this complete meltdown weather-wise. So uh, don't know if that's if you can hear that. I've got my mic level set low, so hopefully that's okay. But that's we're just going to press on. Cool. I can't hear it. Cool, uh, let's do uh, section nine. All right, sweet. Okay, for the word, perceiving that no otherwise <clears throat> could the corruption of men be undone, save by death as a necessary condition, while it was impossible for the word to suffer death being immortal and son of the Father, to this end he takes to himself a body capable of death, that mm -hmm. it, by the partaking of the word who is above all, might be worthy to die in the stead of all. And might, because of the word which was come to dwell in it, remain incorruptible, and that henceforth corruption might be stayed from all by the grace of the resurrection. Whence, by offering unto death the body he himself had taken, as an offering and sacrifice, free from any stain, straightway he put away death from all his peers, 
by the offering of an equivalent. Yeah. For being over all the word of God naturally by offering his own temple and corporeal instrument for the life of all, satisfied the debt by his death. And thus he, the incorruptible son of God, being conjoined with all by a like nature, naturally clothed all with incorruption by the promise of the resurrection. For the actual corruption in death has no longer holding ground against men by the reason of the word, by which by his one body has come to dwell among them. And like as when a great king has entered into some large city and taken up his abode in one of the houses there, such city is at all events held worthy <laughs> of high honor, nor does any enemy or bandit any longer descend upon it and subject it. But on the contrary, it is thought entitled to all care because of the king's having taken up his residence in a single house there. So too has it been with the monarch of all. For now that he has come to our realm and taken up his abode in one body among his peers, henceforth the whole conspiracy of the enemy against mankind is checked. And the corruption of death which before was prevailing against them is done away. For the race of men had gone to ruin, had not the Lord and Savior of all, the Son of God, come among us to meet the end of death. Awesome. So a few things come to mind there for me in that um, I know if, as you were reading, I was thinking, I mean, well, again, you got the atonement substitutionary thing profoundly, you yep. know, there. Sac sacrifice, yeah. yeah. Sacrifice language, offering language, yeah. Right. So I, I was just surprised to see that so clear. But then the other thing is, um, I know I just remember um, thinking about Athanasius and a lot of people accuse him not only of the of the uh, saved by incarnation thing, which, I mean, even just reading this, I don't think stands, but but um, also that, that it, because so much weight is placed on the incarnation as a substitution, um, it's just automatic for everyone. Everyone, uh, you know, it just gave the impression that everyone is just automatically saved, let's put it that way. By, um, I don't think he did teach that. I don't think it ever was uh, formally put down. But um, I know that that's something you might be able to take wrongly from this. Um, and then I did have another thought, but I forgot it now. Any anything's come to uh, come to your mind? No, that's good. Just just reveling in it. Mm -hmm. a, it does raise a lot of questions, and my mind goes: Is he connecting this to deification, or is right. this well, probably theosis, yeah. or you know what's? Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to know a little bit more. But it's 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 very stimulating and it's very encouraging because there's all sorts of good doctrine in there. Yeah, and uh, you know, even just getting to know how this would relate to Rome or Eastern Orthodoxy is helpful. If you haven't looked at that, I mean, that's that's where this is. Um, I feel like I need to do a lot, a lot more work on that, and that would be good. Um, I just remembered what um, what I was going to say, though. Um, it talks about the, I'll just read that first line in my one, the word perceived that, that human corruption could not be undone except by fulfilling the necessary condition of death, but he was unable to suffer death, being immortal and the son of the <clears> Father. <throat> so he took to himself a body which was capable of death. That's profound. Yeah. I mean, that's really good. That we hold to that one hundred percent. That's almost related to the impassibility thing. You know, why? Yeah. How? How could the Son of God suffer? Our catechisms often ask, and it's because you know he was not able to. You know, it's only through a hypostatic union. It's only through the incarnation that. He was uh, able to to um, save us in that way. So that's really fundamental to our understanding of the incarnation, yeah. and that's coming through loud and clear. Very good. Yeah. yeah. All righty, good. Um, so my turn, chapter 20, so a bit of a jump. Yes, um, I've just gone all the way to 54, so I'm just listening now, not reading along. All right. What do you mean? 
So 54 is the next chapter. So I thought I should jump ahead while I had the time while you were talking. I looked like I was listening, but I wasn't really. But, uh, you know. <laughs> all right. So you, to, I was listening. you mean you had, to, you, you had to turn all the pages and now you're not going to be able to follow me. I'm with you. My Kindle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I hear you. It's all good. Um, all right. So chapter 20 then. Here we go. Uh, no one else but the Savior himself, who in the beginning made everything out of nothing, could bring the corrupted into incorruption. No one else but the image of the Father could create, oh, sorry, recreate men in God's image. No one else but our Lord Jesus Christ, who is life itself, could make the mortal immortal. No one else but the Word, who orders everything and is alone the true and only begotten Son of the Father, could teach men about the Father and destroy idolatry. Since the debt owed by all men had to be paid, for all men had to die, he came among us. After he had demonstrated his deity by his works, he offered his sacrifice on behalf of all and surrendered his temple, that is, his body, to death in the place of all. He did this to free men from the guilt of the first sin and to prove himself more powerful than death, displaying his own body incorruptible as a first fruit of the resurrection of all. Two miracles happened at once. The death of all men was accomplished in the Lord's body, and death and corruption were destroyed because the word who was united with it. For there was the need of death, and death must needs be suffered on behalf of all, that the debt owed by all might be paid. The word was unable to die, being immortal, so he took to himself a mortal body in order to offer it, uh, offer it as his own on behalf of all, and in order by suffering on behalf of all, through his union with it to destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were enslaved by their, by their fear of death. And then he's quoting from Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 14 mm. there. Um, so, man, that's crazy. Because again, you got strong atonement, sort of uh, substitutionary themes coming through there. It's amazing. It's almost like smacking me in the face. Um, yeah. But you, you see a lot of the word, a lot of, a lot of the word all there as well. So you can kind of see how that would, um, you know, yeah. that would be taken in that way. And if that's reflective of the rest of his writings, you could see how, how uh, it might become quite a dominant theme, you know. I don't know if you picked this up, but what seems to be missing, like it seems like he's going, okay, so we've got this thing called death. So we need the, the author of life to undo the death thing. Yeah. So it's almost like right. a right, right, right. an artistic... Contrast, poetic yeah, yeah. ironic overcoming right um right as opposed to and i think what i found lacking and maybe it comes up in other chapters um and later theology develops this is the instrumentality of the holy spirit mm. so he makes you know christ the author of life and christ right, the one who overcomes right. corruption and christ is you know because he's the creator he he becomes the one who undoes all these things, but there's no mention of the Spirit in any of those things. Interesting. When Christ yeah. Himself benefited from the power of the Spirit resurrecting Him from the dead, mm. Mm. and then the Spirit taking that which is Christ's and making it ours. So there's, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I just I, I'm appreciating the supremacy of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. Yeah. But I would, I guess, yeah. Well, I later theology develops the, the place of the Spirit in all of this. It'd be one of those classic, I mean, this was his focus, right? I mean, oh my goodness, wow. Talk about a focus in your ministry, you know? Uh, we talk about hobby horses and pet peeves and that sort of thing. But, <laughs> I mean, this is next level, you know? And, and I mean, you, get, 
the book is not the Holy Spirit, it's the incarnation. So, yeah. That's true. And, and you know, his whole theme, his whole mindset is, uh, you know, whether, I mean, who knows if this started after Arius' uh, nonsense, then uh, even more so. But, you know, even prior then, if that's his focus, uh, I suppose, like you see in every book, you know, whenever it's always going to have something lacking when the focus is on a certain uh, issue and it almost takes the next guy to come around and, and round that out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there are, uh, I, I definitely hear you. I feel that as well. I'm looking at that. Um, it is interesting about that whole um, uh, only, how does he start? Um, yeah, no one but the Savior himself who uh, was the one who could bring about life, essentially, um, yeah. could, could do this, could, could take our death. Um, it's almost like it's, it's fitting poetically, therefore it must be true. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I suppose what I read from that was it's almost like uh, the the atonement, and I know I'm reading anachronistically into this big time, but the atone the atonement had to have a divine quality about it, you know, it, in that if another man died for us, it would just be, it'd just be okay. That's a that's a martyr, awesome, but because something about someone who couldn't die dying, there's just something about that that reverses the whole thing. It sort of implodes yeah. into itself and, and next thing you know, you know, you have life. Uh, double negative. More than the satisfaction of the law, there's a, an impartation or a, something that happens. Right, right. Just, you know, it, it just falls back on the question, why, why is it that, you know, uh, Jesus had to be both God and man when he died for us? Yeah. Um, there was a reason, uh, you know, and there are a few different reasons actually, but, but the reality is he might be touching on that in some way. It's just there must be a divine element to Christ, essentially, coming back to the whole um, the Arian controversy. Um, you know, if, if, if that's what they were denying, and, um, you know, basically that, that would have every effect on what Jesus did on the cross. You just have another man dying for you or a, another yeah, demigod dying for, sure. for, you know, a bunch of men, which doesn't really work. It had to be that absolute antithesis of the Lord of life versus the death thing. Anyway, so that's a bit of a stab in the dark. But okay, so, so uh, last, my one's little. I got like yep, three. Uh, chapter there. 54. Do you have a... All right, I'll read this one. All right. As then, if a man should wish to see God, who is invisible by nature and not seen at all, he may know and apprehend him from his works. So let him who fails to see Christ with his understanding at least apprehend him by the works of his body and test whether they be human works or God's works. And if they be human, let him scoff. But if they are not human but of God, let him recognize it and not laugh at what is no matter for scoffing. Rather, let him marvel that by so ordinary a means things divine have been manifested to us and that by death immortality has reached to all and that by the word becoming man the universal providence has been made known and its giver and artificer the very word of god for he was made man that we might be made god <laughs> and he manifested himself by a body that we might receive the idea of the unseen father and he endured the insolence of men that we might inherit immortality for while he himself was in no way injured, being impossible and incorruptible and very, God, very word and God, men who were suffering and for whose sakes he endured all this, he maintained and persevered in his own impassibility. And in a word, the achievements of the Savior resulting from his becoming man are of such kind and number 
that if one should wish to enumerate them, he may be compared to men who gaze at the expanse of the sea and wish to count its waves. For as one cannot take in the whole of the waves with his eyes, for those which are coming on for those which are coming on baffle the sense of him that attempts it. So for him that would take in all the achievements of Christ in the body, it is impossible to take in the whole, even by reckoning them up, as those which go beyond his thought are more than those he thinks he has taken in. Better is it then not to aim at speaking of the whole, where one cannot do justice even to a part, but after mentioning one more to leave the whole for you to marvel at. For all alike are marvelous, and wherever a man turns his glance, he may behold on that side the divinity of the word and be struck with exceeding awe. So I think the point that he's obviously trying to make is that Christ is the manifestation of divinity mm -hmm. and that it's obvious through the works that he did. He mentions the resurrection as one of the, uh, the works mm. and the, uh, the saving work by which he, he puts away death for all. Um, so that seems to be the center of what he's trying to say. Sort but of an anti-Docetic thing as well. You know, he's just uh, anti-Gnostic in, in that he wants to, uh, it's not good enough that he just appeared. He needed to become, it's almost like he has in mind those who would scoff at that idea, but also just the Greeks, again, the Jews, anyone who doesn't yep. like the idea of an incarnation, essentially. He's just trying to say, yep. listen, here's why it had to is why it had to happen the way it happened. Um, it was logical. It was congruous. It was it was necessary. It was fitting. Um, and then yeah. we have that strange language yeah. uh, where he says, "For he was made man, that we might be made God." So we're glorified, Nick. Don't you believe that? We're glorified. <laughs> <at the end. laughs> so I mean, uh, in in Greek Orthodox theology, there's this, it's known as uh, deification. And it's uh, verse four. We we become partakers of the divine nature, and so it's this is our participation. We don't we don't have we don't participate in God's essence. We participate essence, yeah. in His energies, right. using the Horton distinction as he totally. draws it from Eastern Orthodoxy. Very helpful. So although the language is very misleading, there's there's absolutely no pantheistic New Age thing going on here. Yeah. it's, it's a, a yeah. concept of participation, not some sort of evolution towards deity. Right, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, and I think that's super helpful uh, because that is shocking. We would never speak like that, and <laughs> and yet, you know, it's just again, it's one of the helpful things about just reading these guys. Not only are you getting exposed to existing traditions out there, but also just you know, this is our tradition. This is our, our uh, the guys that we need to look at. These are um, Athanasius, man. Wow, how important, how important to the history of Orthodox doctrine and and uh, just defending defending what we know about Jesus and uh, the gospel now. So, amen. I'm just thinking, uh, you know, when you mentioned that, uh, John Piper has actually done a great historiography on um, on Athanasius, you know, with his series that he did. Those yeah, his, bi his uh, biography, yeah. Yeah, and um, it uh, it just, I remember the one on Athanasius in particular, it was just very, very good. It was so dramatic. It was so, you know, classic Piper-esque all over yeah. it. Uh, he did a real good job with that one. And um, so if anyone does want to go and look at, at his life, I haven't done that in a long time, but I, I assume from memory, it's it's still, I'd be 100%. Yeah, it was involved. all, because uh, so, he always tries to draw one key thing out of it. And yeah. this one was persecution for the truth. Yeah, there we go. You know, yeah. laying down your life for the truth of God, mm. you know. Yeah. Just, all right, debt of gratitude to these guys. We've got to read them at least. Read snippets. Just keep joining us on New Age. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, it's very, very say, good reading. I was about to say, keep joining us on New Age Sojourner. <laughs> 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 where, where you learn to become like God. 
and yeah. be gut if you no, um so yeah well hey that's the whole point keep joining us on pilgrim a pilgrim theology adventure and we'll just we'll uh, at least get a snippet of all these things and get you uh, moving in the right directions if you want to follow up on any of those things um cool the storm is getting crazy nick's Webcam is held out. It was going Matrix before this. So yeah, we'll that's miraculous. <laughs> totally miraculous. So um, let's 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 play out, Nick. What do you say? Just Sounds before good. before things uh, you know fall apart. Um, I don't know if this is going to drop on Wednesday and, or Friday or Saturday, but I think we we should say, regardless, go to church. Very smooth. <laughs> and here's a little music for you, just in case it wasn't smooth enough. <laughs>